0: Forward slash the fighting cocks to get started, and to help the podcast. Thank you very much. Have a great day and enjoy the show. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we?
1: Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps—you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all
2: your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little—actually, a lot. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the sports social podcast network. This podcast is part of the sports social podcast network. This podcast is part of the sports social podcast network. This podcast is part of the sports social podcast network.
0: Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help
2: This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
0: Hello, my name's Flav. Uh, we want to make it clear before you listen to this episode that that it isn't about Tottenham. We have a Patreon account, which is a, a paywall where people can get extra content if they want to. Behind this paywall is a podcast we produce called no Holds Barred. Now No Holds Barred gives us the opportunity to talk about stuff outside of our beloved football club. We're releasing this podcast with a man called Josh Connolly on the fighting cock feed because we believe it's essential listening. What you're about to hear is a story of a man of turbulent beginnings where happenings in his life led into the terraces and pavement of Swindon Town Football Club as one of their top boys in their firm. Full disclosure at times this is a difficult listen. There are elements to Josh's story that are triggering and upsetting, as there are as many parts that are uplifting and life-affirming. We truly hope you sit with us over the next 90 minutes to understand what made the mind of a man who is fully involved in the scene of football violence. To support The Fighting Cock and get access to the No Horse Bar podcast, amongst many other things, please consider becoming a patron. It's www.patreon.com forward slash The Fighting Cock.
1: Because everything I do is all really, really deep. Yeah. And nobody wants to talk about the football
0: stuff. And Yeah, well, right. So, um, so Josh Connolly. Yes. i got it right. Do so you know I've got a mate called Carl Donnelly? And that's why I keep... It froze me... Yeah, I can't remember what you said on the podcast. I think I said Josh, I Josh, said, Josh Connolly. I think I'm pretty... I don't know. You said Donnelly, you? Yeah. think. All right. Well, um, <laughs> Connolly's right, isn't it? Of course. Um, so, this is a No Holds Barred podcast. I'm joined by Josh Donnelly. Connolly just Connolly who is uh, I mean your job now is a life coach you help people fix or reorder the, the way they, they work right
1: yeah yeah so I work with I work with organizations as well as individuals uh looking mainly at like resilience yeah so like a a proactive approach to
0: uh, how we bounce back from situations and how we go through change in our lives right so before listening to you on the dog days podcast which is an excellent podcast go and listen to that not right a second but go when you get time go and listen to all of their podcasts it's fantastic yeah. i was on one episode you've been on one um but i, I kind of my opinion of what a, a life coach was was like oh, it's like what had, these are that what these people are kind of feeding information or ha- have these lovely platitudes or proverbs that they're feeding to people that are just receptive it's a bit of a hocus pocus profession then i listened to your pod and your story up up until the point where you became a life coach made it made so much more sense mm. because of that because of what you went through and and the things that, that have developed your brain and how you managed to look back and analyze them it was like fuck no no there are answers in our, all of our past and people can learn from those things and i was like i just want to talk to you i want to sit down with you and so we're now i'm now in uh, in is it swindon Royal Ambassador, right? I, 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 didn't yeah. know, I didn't know how, how specific you wanted me to be it's is different isn't it Royal different yeah Swindon. yeah yeah it's a village outside Swindon yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in, your, in your front room they're talking to you about your story essentially and, yeah. it's, and it's a fascinating one um, but there's lots about it that lots about your story that you didn't talk about in the dog days but I wanted to delve in a little bit more yeah yeah um, look without giving away too much let's, let's, let's just start pretty much from the beginning yeah uh, where you, you come from a home that was dysfunctional to to the extreme, I guess.
1: Yeah. So my, my dad was an alcoholic. Uh, so the house that I lived in when, when I was a child was quite scary, frightening. We spent most of the time upstairs. Mm. Uh, and as a young boy, it frightened me. Uh, and I've always been quite sensitive to that kind of stuff. Right. But I didn't really know that. Um, and so I had to try and deal with it in certain ways, yeah. And I found ways to cope as a child. I found ways to cope with it. And a lot of that meant pushing down who I really was and showing up. Yeah. Showing up to the game and being something, yeah. Fronting things out, making sure that I was okay in situations that really I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I had no idea how much it shaped me. And as I grew up and became a teenager and into a young man... I created narratives to protect myself from that, right? So I created this idea that I was tough, that other people had it worse than me, uh, that you've got to be all right, that you can't use your childhood as, a, as an excuse. Um, because I thought that looking at the ways that it made me feel, the sadness, all that stuff that we don't talk about, mm. I thought that stuff meant I was finding excuses and that I was being weak. So I pushed it down and buried it and it came out of me in a load of different ways throughout my life.
0: Which we'll, we'll come on to, definitely. Um, yeah. But what? Yeah, um, just so people are aware, what what was what was that situation when you were young in terms of what what was going on with your dad? And well, he was like he was very very unpredictable.
1: And the thing about when somebody drinks in the way that my dad drank, you never knew what dad you were going to get when he came home. Yeah, if he came home, and we spent most of our time as kids upstairs. So I lived with two brothers, my younger brother and my older brother. We were all very similar ages, and. You know, I think a lot of parents think that they protect their children by having them upstairs while they drink too much or fight and argue downstairs, yeah? Um, but in some ways, the being upstairs, certainly for the type of person that I am, it made it worse. Mm-hmm. I was always hyper-vigilant, hyper-tuned in to what was going on downstairs, right? And it made me feel very out of control, right? And this is quite important because I, I as much as it frightened me, Listening to it gave me a feeling of control, right? So, when you look at the adult that I am today, I'm terrified of confrontation. But when you see confrontation that I am around, you will see me get drawn towards it. Um, and that is because, as terrified as I am of it, my way of dealing with it and gaining control is to get in and
0: be involved so I know where everyone's at. Yeah, I, I, that completely resonates. So on a night out, if there's trouble around me, yeah, and I'm very edgy and nervous. Like if a fight breaks out with in, in the other side of the pub, I'm really on edge and yeah. desperate to protect my missus or whatever it might be. But when it's been involved in my group of mates, with other people, that fear isn't it's, it's a different kind of I understand it. Like you, you it's, it's been scared of of conflict until it's confronted with you and then it's a different switch. Yeah,
1: yeah. And like literally I was in London with my wife and my two youngest kids recently within the last month or two and there was a fight in the underground station right Mm. and because i'm a lot more aware of myself now the fight happened and it was like quick you know fights only last less than a minute normally right so this fight had happened and then when it stopped i said to my wife like could that like sends me into anxiety overdrive like i'm proper scared when that was happening Mm. and my wife said you didn't look scared because you went straight over to get involved did you well, I didn't go over to get involved, but I, I now recognize that as much as it scares me, I click into this, I need to know what's going on. So I need to know the main man who's fighting and the other main man who's fighting. I need to know where they are. And I click into this sense of control. And it means that I've always been drawn to that chaos, mm. right? I've been drawn to chaos. And actually, what makes me most anxious is when everything's okay. Yeah? Because if you imagine the boy that I was when I was upstairs, Right? When there's fighting and arguing going on downstairs, and I'm led at the top of the stairs, I'm picking it apart, right? I know where my mum is downstairs. I know where my dad is. I know how drunk my dad is by the sound of his breath. I know how drunk he is by the volume of the TV. I know how drunk he is by the way that they're talking to each other. But that gives me control. When it goes silent downstairs, now I'm panicking because I don't know what's going on. Is somebody dead? Right? Is somebody? What's happened? Is my dad gone? Is my mum gone? So I'm I, like in a heightened state of anxiety. When you look at the pattern of my life, you'll see somebody that who, every time I sort my life out and get it on track, my body and my mind starts panicking. What's going on? Something's going to happen. When's it going to go off? When's When's my dad going to come back? Has he gone? That's what my body's doing, yeah? So you'll see somebody who is drawn to chaos. I blow my life to bits when it gets good, because when it gets good, I feel really anxious and like something's about to happen. Yeah. And that's conditioning from when I was younger, right? But... As a young adult, as a, in my late teens and my young adulthood, I never knew this stuff, right? I never knew that there was any links to any of that. So I would create different narratives, right? I wouldn't say I'm drawn to chaos and I feel deeply anxious when there's nothing going on. I'd say I love scrapping on the weekends, right? And I love having a good tear up because that's the narrative that sounds a lot better, right? Mm. Than than I'm a sensitive man who gets frightened when when everything's calm. Yeah. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. You, I've started to recognise in my life today that the things that I say at the surface level quite often are not the reality of what's going on
0: deep inside me. I think that that is fair for a lot of people, a lot of yeah. men as well. You yeah. Know, you know, because it's, no one, everybody has um, cards to play or, or they want to engineer a situation where they, they, they have control and, and the people don't necessarily know everything about you. And there's there's, there's a lot of shame there as well, for me as well, there's things that I've, I, I, that I hide and don't talk about around even in my very positive life that I've managed to find yeah. myself in. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I will not say things and, and and hold back who I am in certain situations because it's better for the, the people around me. Yeah, and then very minor things. Yeah. So you're you're um you're uh you're, you're, you're how old are you at this point when you're kind of well, this would... is as young as
1: four or five years old, right? Yeah. So this is preschool. You know, before even school. I can remember. Um. These kind of memories right Mm. and you just said something really important as well about how you you can hide certain aspects of yourself depending on who you're around right that I now recognise that starts when we're younger right when my when my attachment to my parents is threatened by my authenticity yeah in in what I mean by that is when being who I really am threatens getting love from my parents as a child then I won't be who I really am yeah and if my mum is really, really struggling with my dad and she needs me to be okay because she doesn't have space emotionally to be able to meet my emotions, I push my emotions down mm. and make sure I'm okay for my mum. And then I get conditioned to do that when, as I grow up, right? Add on to that the fact that as a boy in our society, you're never, ever sensitive, ever. No. You're only ever too sensitive, right? That's just the way it is with boys. So... As a boy, as I was growing up, I was had to hide my sensitive part of myself anyway because I didn't think I was supposed to be that as a boy. How do you hide your sensitive self? You stick your chest out, you put an angry face on, and you say you, you're game, right? Mm. That's how I hid it, right? But then I also had to be okay all the time for my mum because I wanted to make sure that I got the attachment from her when I was younger. Yeah. Mm. But when you, what I now know is that when you bury these emotions and when you hide them, it's hugely problematic buried emotions come out of you sideways yeah and when you look at men i think when you look at men in general we we all have a tendency because of this sensitivity thing to really struggle with our emotions right and football right when people when you see a a man crying because his team's just been relegated
0: Mm.
1: he's not crying because his team's just been relegated He's crying because it's the only place in society where he feels like he's allowed to cry. He's crying about all the emotional arguments he's had with his wife over the last year that he hasn't been able to release the emotion from, right? Mm. And so we find unhealthy ways to release our emotions, right? And I'm still like it today. Look, I play football, right? And you'll see a different man when I play football. My my kind of anger and the stuff that I'm not very good at processing will come out of me when I'm playing what football What sort of football? Football are you? I'm a centre of Top of the of course I am, right? That's yeah, that's, but that's what I am. That's like uh, it was always. I w- it was always said when I was a teenager, and as I moved into adult football, that um, I could have been a decent footballer if I could keep my mouth shut. Right, but I couldn't. I had so much emotions in me that I had no idea how to process. There was no space in my house when I was a child for me to explore being angry. Mm. Right. My dad was allowed to be angry, but I wasn't allowed to be angry. It's no coincidence that I struggle with anger as a as a as a young adult. Do you right?
0: feel like that now? Do you still struggle now?
1: With anger? Yeah. 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 I do. I, I, I like. I if I if I, if I so. I use the example with me and my wife. If my wife's angry with me, she'll let me know about it, right? She'll she'll like in a very healthy way. She'll show me she's pissed off. Mm. Right? She'll show me she's angry. She'll show me I've let her down. She'll show me all that. She might be angry for a couple of days and, like, she does her anger thing and then she, you know, comes back to normal. Mm. I push my anger down and try not to show it because I don't know how to express it. Mm. Yeah? I'm worried that uh, if I get angry with her then it's me saying I don't love her as much as I should and all this kind of stuff. the control goes, doesn't it? Yeah. So 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 I have, like... I have two levels. Still, still very much so today. I'm much better now, but it's still normally two levels. Mm. Either I don't kick off, or I kick off. Mm. There's nothing in between where I'm like, no, I'm just a little bit knocked off. Mm. Like I said, I'm getting much better at it today, but it comes out. And when I don't deal with it, if I get angry with my, with my, with my wife, yeah, it's. I have outlets football is one of them but yeah. i also go to the gym and punch a punch bag yeah. but i have to find ways to re- to release and express my anger
0: otherwise it comes out it's a too. very natural feeling isn't it? anger it's is part of it it makes every person every person alive has that element to their character yeah exactly and, and anger in and of itself is not a bad thing no it's just what you do with your anger that that can potentially be bad right? yeah and when you when when you have that formation and when what, i guess what you see your dad when he was angry when he was pissed yeah, the, the the what you learn in your formative years is is how you often, certainly in your teens and and early twenties, is, is how you kind of end up expressing that anger at the same time.
1: Yeah, exactly, because that's how I see him express anger,
0: yeah. and so, uh,
1: you know, when I got even girlfriends in my in my teenage years, and I started getting girlfriends, right, and and I would shout at them, like shout in their face, and I would think, well, that's all right, I'm not beating you up or anything like that like I'd never lay a finger on a woman but and i but I would use that to justify that I'm screaming in their face because I'm almost desensitized to that like yeah. it doesn't feel unnatural
0: for me to be shouting in a, in a woman's face mm. so you you' that there was sort of domestic violence between your mum and your yeah and your dad yeah, yeah. um and then obviously get. The, the drinking gets really bad, yeah, and he passes away, doesn't he? Uh, well, he was around nine, nine years old, yeah. When he when he died, yeah. And and it, it previous to or in between, you know, where he was listening and on on the the landing, and um and in passing away, was kind of your you, your mum and dad split up, and he moved yeah. away into another. He went to, uh, he he went went to prison went for a couple in, of years.
1: Yeah, he was in prison for two or three years, and then he moved out and was living in a. In a flat not far from where we lived, and he used to go and visit on the weekends. Yeah. That's right,
0: that's right. Um, what do, do do you know why your dad used to would, would drink? Because you he, knew why you ended up drinking, yeah, yeah. But do you know why your dad did?
1: So, like, I know like simplistic version of my dad's story, but he was fostered when he was two years old or three years old because his dad was a street alcoholic, and his, and, and so he was with his mum, and then she shot herself. Uh, she, Irish lady shot herself. So then he was fostered. But when when he was fostered, he he used to walk past his dad on the street, and his dad would beg him for money on his way to school. So, like he drank for the same reasons as me, which I believe is just untreated trauma. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is like like a deep internal pain that's not dealt with. And when you don't deal with that internal pain, then like it gets infected. For me, it's the same. Right, like a. An internal trauma is the same as an external trauma, right? If you get a bad physical trauma, if you don't treat it, it won't get better. But if you do treat it, it will get better. Mm. It might not ever fully heal, right? You might still bear the wounds or the scars of it. But as long as you treat it, then it doesn't become an issue. If you leave leave it, it becomes infected, it gets
0: worse. Mm. And... I, And there's no difference. And the understanding of mental health back then would have been insignificant to what it is now. Yeah, yeah. Which didn't even really exist. Yeah, it was just man up or uh, you know, you know, chin up. It would be all right. Yeah, get on with it. Get on with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So the the kind of pattern there's a you can see that there's a pattern between your father and your your grandfather or or his dad, Mm. Uh, and then you you were quite a young age after. Losing your, your dad, yeah, went on, went turned to drink quite quickly, right? Yeah, yeah, I was drinking by the time I was about 12. So, you were in school, secondary school, first,
1: about yeah. year seven, year eight, eight? Yeah, year seven, year eight. I and started five. smoking cannabis first. Did you? Yeah, yeah, actually, it was hash back then, so it was yeah. resin and stuff, yeah, and
0: we used to smoke it through. A bong like a water pipe, yeah. So that, so uh, where in, in, a, was it, is this just inside school? Was you, was you under the influence at school all the time? Oh yeah,
1: we used to smoke on the way to school, yeah, yeah, smoke jobs on the way to school, yeah. And then by year nine, it was pills. Mm. So we used to. I remember we took pills at school. Yeah, we took pills at lunchtime at school. And what
0: we used to do, I worked for a charity for a long time, and one a group of kids that we used to work with were ones that had developed mental health or forms of psychosis through heavy use of class a drugs at a very young age yeah so ndma yeah uh, was a big one um so uh, and were completely destructive to their learning environment yeah is that was that your experience as well you know did, were, were you aware of what you were doing was destructive at that time was it just a laugh no well the thing is like
1: i was never gonna drink and never gonna do drugs because my dad gave me the perfect example of how not to be right yeah. but Like, I now recognise that as much as I wasn't going to, as soon as I saw people smoking weed at first and I saw the way it made them, then I was drawn to that, right? Um, And then when I drank alcohol, it worked, right? It, like, was the, the answer to all my problems. Like, when I think back to my childhood, my best childhood years were, like, between 13 and 16. That's when I was doing alcohol and drugs on the weekend And there was like little or no consequence. I never cared about school or like what I did academically. I came away from school with really, really good grades, right? Not because um, I tried hard. I didn't. I got stoned from all my GCSEs. But I've just been naturally academic, right? So like I did well in terms of grades. But I remember when when I first started using drink and drugs, I remember thinking... This is it. This is what you know. As, as long as I can do this, right, and not cross that line, then life will life sorted. I'll be able to go to work. And I, but I did shift at that point from like when I was twelve, thirteen. I wanted to go and do like law at college and things like that. I wanted to like get some kind of job like that. But the moment I found drink and drugs, I shifted to wanted to work on a building site or wanted to work in a factory because it was subconsciously. But I started to know that I needed to build my life around drink and drug use mm. really and i don't know if you remember the streets yeah of that, course yeah yeah so when you know I, I like he kind of epitomized the type of lifestyle i wanted you know yeah. and just sitting at home smoking weed yeah. like i wasn't a problem to society yeah, and all just, that kind of yeah but that kind of lifestyle like going to clubs on the weekend and doing pills and like i thought that was going to be my life Cafes on a Saturday morning, all but all, all very glamorized in my head. Yeah, you know? this doesn't sound like a you
0: know like a problem.
1: Issue. No, no, and 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 I think the key is is that until my daughter was born, it wasn't really that much of a problem. It was serving a purpose and it was working. Now it was detrimental because I was on a downward slide. When you look at the way my life was going, right? I was already obsessing about drugs. I was already using alcohol way too frequently. I was smoking cannabis every single day from, yeah. and, and in the morning when I woke up, right? So it was problematic, but 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 because of the lifestyle that I was living, the impact on my life wasn't huge and actually was only positive. When I didn't smoke drugs and drink alcohol, I didn't know it at the time, but I was full of anxiety and deeply depressed, yeah. right? Yeah, when I smoked drugs and drank alcohol, I wasn't. So it, it worked; it served a purpose. But then, when my daughter was born when I was eighteen years old, then everything changes, right? Cause you've got, got, got not, just just for record, you've got six children now. I've got six kids now. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the,
0: everything by <laughs> extremes for sure. Yeah, exactly,
1: exactly. Well, I had four four kids with my ex wife by the time I was twenty four. I mean, it was like it was a really toxic relationship actually, and I created the same environment. um that my, my dad had created in our house, really.
0: In in what respect, Then,
1: Well, I did what society had always expected of me, right? I got a job, um, I got a car, got a house, married the kid's man, you know? Yeah, of course. And here's one of the important things, really, as well, is that when my ex-wife was pregnant with my daughter, when I look back at it, and this is probably like a difficult thing in society to view, I thought a man steps up to the plate and be there for his kid right now i think that's true i think any human being actually not a man i think now that any human being should step up and be there for for their child mm-hmm. but with hindsight the best thing that i could have done to be there for my child would have been to let her mum have her because we weren't really together in a proper relationship when my daughter you know when her mum got pregnant um but I thought I had to show up to the game. So it was like, well, that's it. And I remember very consciously thinking, well, the game's up now. This is going to have to be your wife. You're going to have to marry this woman and have
0: children. Otherwise, you're you're failing. Yeah. The healthiest thing would actually been to remove your presence somewhat. In the same way that, you, that, that I'd imagine. And it's anything I say, assumptions here are just obviously... Yeah, no, that's good. A, good a, a no value. We can, we can unpack no, them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we have no real value because I don't know you well enough. But... There would have been elements, uh, your, your, your life would have probably been healthier if your dad was a l- less, lesser part of it, I'd imagine. Yeah. Because yeah. it would have just been less stressful for you. Yeah. You know? And in, in, like you say, it's not always the best case to, for two people who don't want to really be together yeah. to, to remain for the sake of the kids. It's, often that's the worst thing you can do. It, it
1: is literally the worst thing that you can do, right? Like what children need is loving, nurturing environments. And I was never going to be able to create that with, with their mum right but social pressures it wasn't was it social pressures yeah it was because it was what i thought i was supposed to do as a man right you Mm -hmm. get a house get a car and i got a job in a factory started earning money right and put myself and my life on the back burner and just thought this is what you have to do to be a dad now what that became was about the way that i was perceived by the rest of the world it meant that I went and got a job. I was happy go lucky, worked hard. Yeah, worked hard, played hard, and did all that. But my family got the worst of me because yeah. when I got home, I took the mask off because everything else was a show. Yeah. Um, and I, like, I desperately didn't want to be the man that I'd become. But our society does allow you to be that man very easily.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. As long as you work, as long as you're working hard, you can kind of get away with doing anything in and around that and society will be relatively at least at surface level relatively accepting of it mm. you know and i would you know i started going i got involved in football violence and i was in gangs by the way when i was younger
0: yeah so we've skipped ahead a little bit yeah you're talking about your family and your six kids yeah uh, which is incredible um so yeah you was in you was drinking and stuff and, mm. and i was exposed to drugs and with that comes a certain element. Um, cause you have to buy drugs from people. Yeah. Uh, so what, yeah, what happened? So you, you finished school and you're, what, where are you at then? Yeah. Well, I got involved in gangs when I was like 13, 14 years old. What do you mean by gang? Like what? Cause there's lots of ideas about what gang is. What, yeah. What so I suppose like?
1: when I say gangs, what I mean is, is, um, organized groups that sell drugs. Right, yeah. okay. So it wasn't like, when I say I got involved in gangs, I didn't run around doing gang warfare. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was guys from London that were coming to Swindon in a car, mm. bringing me drugs, and I was selling them their
0: drugs for them. How, do you, how do you, as a how old was you at that age? 13. How, how does a 13-year-old make a connection like that? Do they just can't come groom? Oh, of course they do. It's criminal grooming.
1: So, look, right, this is how I view it now, right? And when I go in, because I work with schools now, and I work with like um social services in this area trying to stop the 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 young lads that are on the brink of doing it yeah for me it starts with unmet needs yeah i wasn't feeling uh like i could receive any love at home i was naughty at school so i had no adult connection as a child right i've always been very very loyal when i say always at times it's been in my own dysfunctional way so i won't come across as loyal but i've always been at my heart very loyal to the people that i care about uh, and I've always had that need and want to be part of something and to be loved, right? Mm. And if you don't have that family environment at home, then you'll seek to get that. So when I'm hanging about down the park and an 18-year-old starts, I mean, the first time they ever do it, they, they gave me an ounce of weed to sell. And when I came back with the money, they said, you keep that. You can have that, right? You're going to make way more than that. You pay us back in the future, right? But then all of a sudden, I'm in debt to them. If yeah. I go out and spend this £200... But they're always like every now and then they'd mention it, yeah. So I'm hooked. I'm in there already now. But I enjoyed... I would have killed for them. Yeah. I would have killed for them at that age because because they met that need that was did previously they, unmet. Did they
0: show you kindness, or was it a, a, was it a, just a respect thing? What, what did were they kind to you? Yeah. So like the like they would do like when I look back at it now, they would do very
1: like just simple things that would. So I would knock about with like four or five of them and and it was known that I knocked about with them and I was in with them, which was great because it gave me like that feeling of prestige. Mm. But like, we'd be hanging about with one of them and one of them would get a little bit like, uh, like would kick off a little bit with me and the other one would be like, no, 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 leave it. And then whisper in his ear, I don't want him to do you. I reckon he'll do you. But he's whispering it so I can hear it, yeah? Because then I'd be like, get... he thinks I'm well-ard, Yeah. yeah? right and then so you probably like i felt all that love but then when look when i was 15 they kidnapped me right so i was coming home from the girlfriend that i was with at the time and they got me in a car and said they were taking me to london right and i was selling weed for them at the time and they got out of the car just before we got on the motorway and started dancing around the car right they had music blowing out of course i'm thinking i'm gonna run right i'm gonna run sorry
0: what, ha, these yeah, what
1: Right, so so right, I was selling weed for them, so they used to ring me all the time. Yeah, right. So yeah. they'd always be ringing me, "Where are you at?" Right. They used to be like, "Where are you at, bruv? Where are you at?" And I'd be like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm just here They like, they'd always be like, "You got you got the food, yeah? You got the food." Yeah. And I'd be like, "Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. You're not snitching and all that, right?" So they used to like keep tabs on me. Yeah, right. Yeah,
0: yeah. So yeah. There's, there, there's there's kind of levels of psychology and and, and they're playing with you. Yeah, to, yeah. They're, they're, to control, control. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like
1: real Somonic. coercive control. Yeah, mm. which being the typical codependent person that I would come in that I needed like to be loved and be part of something to be I felt part of a structure yeah yeah and so I was walking home from my girlfriend's this one this one time and they rang me and was like where are you and you always tell them yeah because you you think if I if I lie they might be over there and can see me right so you'd say and they come and pick me up and they was like we're going to London, we're going to London, right? And I was going, I can't go to London, I've got school tomorrow, right? right everyone would wonder, Yeah, everyone <laughs> will wonder where I am. They had this loud music on and they were like talking under their breath to each other. And of course, I've got an act call and like it's not affecting me. But I'm petrified. Of course, right? So they got out of the car just before we got on the motorway and they were dancing around the car. And of course I'm thinking I'm gonna get out and run, right? But I was so scared. I bottled it, right? I I didn't run. And then they got back in the car. We got on the motorway and they were just talking about London. You're going to meet the top dog. And they were like saying these names. You're going to meet these people.
0: Can I ask why they were dancing around the car?
1: I'll get to it. You'll right, find out. Right, right. You'll find out. Yeah? It, it all comes It all comes <laughs> true. So then we got to, they come off at Reading and they got out and they danced around the car, right? And then I was thinking, if I run here, like right, at Reading, I've got nowhere to go, right? And then I just thought, you're all in now, right? You're all in. So we got back in the car, but then they got back on the motorway to come back to Swindon. And then when we got back to Swindon, they, they got out of the car and danced around the car once more. And by then, I've, it was more like, if I get up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to piss myself, right? I'm that scared. Uh, and then they drove me to a place called Greenbridge in Swindon. It's in like an industrial estate retail park. And at the back of it, there's these bushes. And they got me out of the car and they started talking about what they were going to do with my body, right? Uh, and... Um, they took me round to the back of the car and I watched them put a snooker queue, like a pool queue together, right, and they were discussing, are you going to, they were saying things like, are you going to bash him with that first, what are you going to do, we're, and oh, we'll just leave him in there, leave him in the bushes, no one will know, right, so I'm, I'm, I'm shitting myself, right, then they put a bag over my head, right, and walked me up into the bush, and then they started talking about a gun, I never saw a gun, but something was put to the back of my head, right, and then I'm up in this bush and they counted to three one, two, three and then they ripped the bag off my head and burst out laughing right then I'm like what, what, what and they're like ah oh, yeah mate like going on about how tough I was about how hard I was they took me for a kebab around the corner right and basically they were saying we want you to sell crack for us and they were like no one's ever survived the first time we got out of the car everyone runs yeah everyone runs <laughs> you never run right but at 15 years old I'm like I never ran man <laughs> I never ran yeah so like I would never have sold I never like at that stage in my life would would have been like I'm never selling crack for them right I would never sell get involved in that right? right but the next day I'm like I think I'm Tony Montana when I'm at school yeah I think I'm I was genuinely thinking about how I was going to buy a house for my mum right in a few years time because I'm going to start of course I'm going to sell crack I'm, I, I never ran yeah so but it was all it's a, a and like I work with the police as well in Swindon now. Um, it's all a, like a very known, obvious tactic, a way of making me think that I had passed some initiation, right? Yeah. To get into the... Into the... Into the gang.
0: That's fucking madness. Yeah. yeah. But I... I like, when you said dance around the car and then didn't explain it, I was like, what is... What? That's so weird. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like... Why, it's
1: like, freaky. Yeah, it was... But at the time it was freaky and it scared the hell out of you because you was like, what the... Like is going on? But... Like the, the the weird thing was, is that at that age, I I didn't even think it was that big a deal. I just sort of took it in my stride. I went to school the next morning, but
0: yeah, I felt amazing. I, yeah, so like I, because I live in bullshit. We don't live that far from each other. Yeah, and a little boy and a girl, and that she went to big school. Yeah, yesterday, first day. Yeah, school, yeah. And her mum dropped her off, and she said, "I'm really nervous for her," and I'm looking at her and thinking. The school I went to, you'd be nervous yeah. walking into, <laughs> yeah. because shit, happened, like you said, it wasn't a big deal. I remember a, a kid putting a knife to my throat. This is a hybrid Grove school in, in North London, so yeah, quite a, quite a tough school. It bordered on the uh, Homerton Estate, which is quite notorious in North London, um, and lots of kids from Hackney came. I was I was a definite yeah. minority, being one of only two white kids in my in my in my class. Yeah, and because yeah. of that, you, you're you're um, victimised to some yeah. degree. Anyway, so a kid. I remember vividly a kid holding a knife to my my throat, asking for money, dinner money or something. Didn't have any because I had like a dinner path. Mm. And, it, and 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 remember just going on about my day, going on and 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 just continuing with whatever I was doing. And even now, when you think back, it's not a traumatic thing. It's it's, it's a bit disturbing to think that it didn't affect me. And what environment was I trying to learn in? But it was. It was, it was a weird, weird thing, and, and it's kind of when she, when my little girl went into school, I was like completely relaxed with that, even though her mum was yeah. a, bit a bit nervous, you know. And it's amazing, I, you know, I, I can't say that I would have definitely, I would definitely one hundred percent run when they first started dancing around the car. But it is, it is weird about how young people can be. I was going to say resilient, but more uh, reactive to what's around them and didn't Yeah, they, yeah, you know.
1: But I was look. The reason I didn't run more than anything is because I was scared stiff. Yeah, But there was a part of me as well that that was probably like, no, just front out, front out. I've always just been, well, it's front out. And, and like you say, yeah, like when you got had the knife held up to your throat and that, and it didn't seem that big a deal, it took me a long time to realise that, that that was even really like a, a kidnapping, thing. right? I didn't, I just didn't even think that. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I probably was an adult before I started calling it a being kid- kidnapped. And it was only when I started reciting it, I started thinking... That was really bad. <laughs> really bad. Really, because it, it didn't feel like it, and it didn't feel like a traumatic experience. But you'd live through, you've lived through traumatic. Yeah, and I guess in a way, it, it, it was kind of nothing compared to, to to what I experienced when I was younger. Yeah, it's not yeah. like
0: yeah, it's not like taking you know, Tarquin, who's never had yeah. a fight in his life. To, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you've gone, you've lived through that and almost prepared for it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's like have you heard of Ant Middleton? Is the SAS guy? who's on the yes, TV, yeah, yeah, yeah. He climbed Everest. And the other day, and um, but, but he said it wasn't as bad as everyone made out, but that's because they, they didn't have the horrendous things that you've seen and lived through to, uh, as, as yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, so, right, you how long did this relationship with these guys last? So, like, one of the
1: main guys went to prison when I was just before I left school, um, and then when I left school, like 16 17, I got really into the clubbing kind of scene, going out and clubbing, mm-hmm. so. I used to sell quite. I used to. I got involved in selling pills and coke then for a bit, um, and I got in a lot of trouble actually with the the cocaine side of stuff. Um, what people not wanting
0: you to sell?
1: Uh, or you, no, I used to do it all. I used right. to do it all. So you're getting
0: high off your own supply. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. So yeah, like. The trouble with cocaine is it's just very moorish, isn't it? It wasn't <laughs> like weed where you smoke, you know. Um,
0: the, 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 probably the most moorish thing you can. Yeah,
1: and you can do it. You can do your supply in a night. Whereas, you yeah. know, like when I used to sell weed, you can only do so much of it really in a night, you know. So you can only like go into your your, your stash or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But cocaine, I got into some quite bad problems. And, and, I, and so I used to sell, do you know um, creatine? Yeah. That people use at the gym. Yes, that's right. I used yeah. to go and buy jars of that. And then I in the end, I was like mixing like a quarter of an ounce with three quarters of an ounce of creatine and then uh, going into town and selling that. Wow. To try and make money back. Because I was in a hole. It was in a bad hole, yeah. But I, I kind of, uh, I had one bad scare with that when I got in quite a bit of trouble. I was dealing, it changed then. It was less gang- related stuff when you start getting involved in the like the pub scene it's more like that when i was got in that trouble with that cocaine that time that was like a i'd met someone on a building site i was site labouring on a building site who knew a guy in newcastle and so then he used to come down and bring me stuff from up there yeah but it was still scary like when you when you got in trouble with it Mm. but i got out of that uh i had enough about me really to realize that I just kept getting in trouble with it because I just kept ruining it, Mm. Um, and and then when the club in when my daughter was born when I was eighteen, it went from being partying and then my that's when I got involved in football. Yeah, so you're a Swindon Town fan. Yes, I'm a Swindon Town fan. Yeah, Yeah. diehard Swindon Town fan. Yeah. So,
0: did when did you start going football?
1: So I've always been, ever since I can remember, I've always been a, a Swindon Town fan. So I had a season ticket. Um, they did a deal on a season ticket when we opened our new stand when I was about 13. Mm. And it was like really cheap. I don't remember what the price was, but I had a season ticket then and then I used to go quite a lot. And then uh, I stopped when I was 15 and involved in all that other stuff. But then when I got to like 17, I started going. I used to go home and away every, every week at
0: like... Football was my life then. Mm. Um, and then the Swindon obviously is... Uh, the vast majority, almost 99% of the people that listen to this will be Spurs fans because of the fighting cop. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, the the hooligan element at Tottenham is... Uh, you know better than me probably, but it's supposed to be pretty significant. Yeah. But if unless you're really looking for it or end up in the wrong pub, you, you, you wouldn't be aware of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Swindon Town, I'd imagine that it's a much more insular... And, and a smaller fan base. It, it, it,
1: it is. It is more insular. It is more insular. Um,
0: I guess my question is: Is, is, is how, how did you end up? It, was it easy? Or was it unavoidable? Getting you know, eventually ending up in the, getting involved in the football violence. I don't
1: think it was like, it, it, like it wasn't unavoidable. It was. It's very avoidable. But not when you're the type of person that I am. That's drawn to the chaos. That's like, um, I loved it. I loved it. For the first time, I went away with a load of football lads, and I met I met the football lads originally in the pub. Uh, from the first time I went on an away day, I knew that that was going to be my life. Um, and actually, when I talk about all the things that I used to do, um, you know, from the drinking, and I haven't drank for seven and that's over seven years now, from the drinking to the drug use to the gangster. All of that, when I look back on it, I look back on it on nothing with nothing but that was a bad time. I went through difficult stuff and I'd never want to go back there again. The football side of it, the, the buzz element that came with what I did at football is the one part of me that might probably never die. Although I still, I see it now for what it is. Which, right? is... Which is bravado and a load of rubbish. 90% of the time 90% of the time um actually that's probably even a little bit harsh yeah. to say that it's provided a load rubbish um when i was in it right i loved it it was proper camaraderie right i can imagine it's what you you know i met up with blokes who I would, have, I would have died for them on the weekends, well,
0: right? Because that is, a, that is a, another replacement for family, isn't it? Without question. But, but it's, that's even, it's, even it's, it's a positive experience compared to what you had previously yeah. with the gang. Yeah. You've actually got some lads who you, you, you're on, you would, there's friendships, genuine friendships. Genuine
1: friendships, genuine there for each other. And that's why I take away the statement when I said it was all bravado and a load of rubbish. A lot of it was bravado, and a lot of it was a load of rubbish but at the core of it i mean the guys that were like really doing it and this is not to glamorize it uh were good men were good guys they're good men a lot of them yeah they're good men but
0: what well, in what respect do you mean they take care of their wives and
1: take care of their, their families kids. yeah most of them were working men respectful respectful guys a lot of them had you know they were business owners and stuff that would do it mm. but most of them at their core I would say were like me uh, emotionally inept and it gave you a way to to outpour your emotions it gave so much in such a complex way really you're part of something yeah you you you've, you create this bond in a what is effectively an unhealthy way but there is a bond there one that I haven't experienced and particularly with other men right and i think this is true when we talk about men um i find it difficult to create meaningful relationships with men just generally right uh you know to meet up and have a beer and chat
0: yeah
1: right unless we're meeting up for a reason i find it difficult and i think weird or
0: what uncomfortable you need a reason to meet well yeah so but, but but even a
1: beer is a reason to meet right if right. i like to go for a coffee, say let's go for a coffee with another man, right it's not that I can't do it, but I find it less so today, but certainly when I was a young in my early twenties, I found uh bonding with men difficult, mm. yeah because my 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 vision of what love was with women was sex-based, really, yeah, cool. yeah, like, it was like lusting over a woman, I would crash in and out of relationships all the time, fall head over in heels in love, right, full of lust and all that, and then when that dies out, I, I didn't really have a concept of what love was supposed to feel like, and so to bond in a friendship with a, with a man, yeah, mm. to be, like, have friends around me who I would be like, I'm there for you, Yeah, just didn't, it didn't really happen, but you got all that by being like... I got your back. I will. We used to say, "I will not stand down. I will not stand down today." Yeah, that's you talking about the football. The football, yeah. yeah? yeah. So with the football lads, you would say stuff like that. So you got these kind of unmet needs that everybody needs. Every man needs connection with other men. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, It's healthy, but when you can't meet that need because you're you're not emotionally literate enough to do that, football, everything about football met that.
0: It's a conduit, is not it? Isn't yeah, it? exactly, it?
1: <laughs> exactly. And actually, if you take away the violence um, and take away the football, and just go to football and do what we do, which is shout, yeah. yeah? Effectively, we shout at a load of kids on a football pitch, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, when, yeah. when you when you when you strip it down, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we do it together. We do it. We're, we're as one. You know, we've all got a common. I think it's belonging to something girl, bigger than yourself as well. Belonging to something bigger than right. yourself. Yeah, it's all, it's all of that stuff. And I guess with the violence side of it, it took all that a step further and it and it gave you uh, an outpour of emotions. And I and I, and, I, and I would I used to feel better on a Monday after a weekend of at the beginning, before it got you know, before I got bad with drink. Um, mm. but at the beginning I, I used to feel that release yeah. and, and everything and it and it and it worked.
0: So, um, so you, how old are you now, 18, 19? 18, 19, when I first started going home and away, yeah. And Swindon have, was it just one firm? Did they have a youth division? Or was yeah, it... so you had, the, you had the youth division and then you had like the main uh,
1: firm and I kind of always prided myself on the fact that I was more, I used to knock about with all the older men, even right. when I was a young lad. Why would that be? Uh, because I, there was a particular, the top, Guy, the top lad, became like a father figure to me. And I would have done anything to impress him and, and to be... And, by the way, he is a top man. I haven't spoke to him for years, but he was a top, top man. I mean, he really... Take away the, quote-unquote, dysfunction of the football violence, uh,
0: he would have really looked out for me, you know? A good, a, a good man. A very good man, yeah. yeah. Uh, but what what you'd have to do something... In return for that to to warrant your place, um, like if I turned up and had a go, I don't think I would have risen to the top quite yeah. quickly as you did. So, what was it about that? Why, why how did you? Because I had no fear for my life, right?
1: I was suicidal, homicidal, yeah. Like, I didn't care about, I cared deeply about everything, but externally, I was just drawn to that chaos, yeah. When a fight happened, I was there, I had no fear. Well, it's contradictions because I was so full of fear in my life, but yeah, but I, you're, you're reacting
0: to something. You don't have to think about it. if so yeah. you don't have fear in that moment.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thought of it and perhaps is different. And I always get, I always get stuck in. Like I would, I would always be at the front. Yeah, always, yeah. And I uh, prided myself. You is know, that, it's, it's, when I when I talk about it, I'm kind of like I get very conscious because I'm just telling you it as it was. I know, because uh,
0: you don't want it to come across
1: like... That law. I'm glamorising no, it. No, yeah. yeah, and
0: it doesn't come across no, that. No, that's good. But yeah. I, I I appreciate why where that's coming from. Yeah. Because I'm exactly the same on, on the podcast, not in terms of football violence. Uh, but when people... I'm acutely aware of trying desperately not to underplay anything I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I'm asking you this stuff because it's interesting. Yeah. Because all of this, this whole conversation is getting us to a point where we're figuring out what... What makes a good life coach? that's yes, yeah. that's, <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this is really and big. there's going to be an out at the end, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, so where I tell so you this isn't yeah, just yeah unbridled difficulty and misery. <laughs> there is an out at the end. Well, um, so yeah, yeah. So you're 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 um you how long have we got? It's ten past one. Yeah, yeah. We have got loads of time. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you're 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 well respected at this stage. Um, you're fighting and. You're going away every weekend. Yeah. Uh, do you sometimes not make like the football? Do you get, have you been nicked? Oh yeah, I used, to, yeah, so
1: like, uh, when I say fighting every weekend, this is the thing about it, right, so when I talk about it being 90% bravado, right, you had the times where it did go off, but they were very, very fleeting, right, the police are very, very good, right, they're very on top of it, they've got it all sorted, it's very difficult to actually have a fight, But what I found was, and I think people that are involved in it might struggle to admit this, but we would go away and there would be, it would go off. But when I say go off, I mean there would be a clash where there's the police in the middle and we're shouting at each other, yeah? yeah? And we're throwing stuff at each other and every now and then someone walks, manages to break through the police a little bit, gives a bit of the old arm sling in, right? And then gets pulled back in. And then the next day at the pub, when you're talking about it, or later that night, you're talking about how it went off. It yeah. went off, there was 80 of them and there was 80 of us, right? And you're having this conversation, everyone knowing that it didn't really go off. You're on. all collectively bullshitting, <laughs> right? And that's the thing, yeah, yeah. You're, you're all doing that. You're, but some of it is you're caught up in the moment and when it actually, when it happened, it did feel like it was going off. Mm. You know, you could hear coins and things smashing all around you and it was a real burst, but there was no fight in it. Mm. But there was times when there was fighting, and the like. The worst one I remember was at the Pride of Paddington in um, in London, by Paddington Station, the small pub. Yeah, and it was Millwall fans. We were coming home. I can't remember where we'd been. Another. It was a different game, but there was a load of Millwall fans in there, and that was a proper fight. And the pub got
0: smashed up for. A proper fight for about five minutes. So you, so your lot walked into this pub and Mill were there as well. Yeah, and you, they knew you by just the way you were dressed and, and and
1: Yeah, you always knew. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. You know who's
0: who's yeah part of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was that's like the worst trouble I can remember.
0: But you were t- like, what well, how did you come out of that scrap? did you everyone when the the police turn up
1: yeah the police turn up you're like the police will always eventually turn up right and then you everyone goes you all scatter and Mm. it's about whether you can get away but people used to get like dorm raided and stuff like that Mm. so that's when it became bad is when you'd be at work on a Monday morning and you'd get the text so and so has been done this morning so and so has been done this morning Mm. and then what you start to realise is because the police were really good with it so they the police would um Film you all morning, yeah, and they do stuff where so like at Swindon. I remember once when we were playing Bristol Rovers before the game, a, a load of our lads were stood outside the county ground, and they marched with a you know they, a proper police barrier in the middle. They marched Bristol Rovers down past us, right? But they've all they're filming you, and what they're doing is they're the police are purposely kind of antagonising you, so they can get me on camera mm. Go in, me and you, after, outside, I'm going to do you, and all that shouting, that stuff, yeah. so that later on that night, or later on that day, if I am caught fighting away from, somewhere away from the ground, and I'm caught in a fight, when it goes to court, and I say, it was just a fight, it was nothing to do with football, they go, well hang on a minute, we've got your film doing yeah, it's premeditated. Yeah. Yeah. So like, they were very clever with it, but we used to do... You, you would get a text on some away days from an unknown number in the morning, and you would go and it would tell you where the coach was going to be, and then you would go and get on the coach. We went to Southampton away once, and the coach driver, we got on the coach, and we all, I think we, we used to bung the coach driver, everyone would bung him five, ten pounds to let us all smoke and drink on the coach. Yeah. And it wasn't he didn't really have a choice. No. It's like, we're doing it yeah. and you can take the like 90 quid you're going to get for doing it or you can not. Right. And we went to Southampton and the, the police surrounded the coach because we got off early. We got off a few junctions before we were supposed to, because the coach driver wanted to throw all the empty bottles and everything away before we got to the ground. And the police had been following us and thought we were turning off early to go and have a, a scrap. Yeah. So they like jumped the coach and they arrested the coach driver when we got there. Yeah. There, was a, there was a massive fight in the ground and they had to bail the coach driver to drive us home and the coach of whatever it was, 50, there was about 12
0: of us on it on the way home because everyone, like, <laughs> everyone else had been... My, my, that. my, my dad uh, always tells me a story of when he, was, he went to Coventry away in the... Uh, it must have been the 80s. And the coaches are a big thing at, at Spurs as well. Yeah. And it was kind of part of our... Um, had some traditions and folklore, at Spurs about the Tottenham coaches, and my dad he got on his coach with his mate Bryn and uh, it was packed, it was rand, and literally by the time it arrived, they got to Co- Coventry, it was like four of them that got off yeah. to the state yeah, yeah, and yeah. the rest had just got off from pre-arranged yeah. Um But you're you're um you're you're talking about this with like cold and fondness. It feels like a, warm, a warmth to it. Yeah. yeah, you're not on, you're still not on a happy person at that time, are you? Like, I was in my life, I was unhappy. Yeah, deeply, deeply unhappy. And I guess that's
1: another segment to it, is that this was an escape from that. This was a release from that. This is, you know, I had a family at home. I had a wife and children. but I had four children, like I say, with my ex-wife by the time I was 24. So I had all that at home, but just being me, alone with myself, I, I hated who I was. I was disgusted with who I was. I was deeply depressed. But when I went to football, all of that went away, Yeah football violence all that stuff that forces you into the moment yeah it really does because you you do have to keep keep your wits about you. yeah um you do get constant validation from from people especially when it goes off and if you manage to do something silly you know um so I was deeply, deeply unhappy, but the football was a release. It was an escape. It was a solution to all of that, it yeah. a, and
0: it worked. And that was coupled time. with lots, of, obviously, drinking and and drugs as well.
1: Yeah, drinking and 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 drug use. Yeah, and uh, hospital. Spent a lot of
0: time in hospital. What in in what respect? I know. I we're coming to a point. I, I think you know already, because obviously you do, because it happened to you uh, of, of a, the significant injury you sustained. But would you often? I have to end up in the hospital after fighting and so. stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Particularly getting hit with missiles was, was like more when you'd have to have things like that. sort of um, coins and rocks and stuff like that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Getting, yeah. Your head cut open. Getting your head cut open and stuff like that, yeah. But then also when you went away, like you'd go away for an away day. We, we did things like Accrington away. You we, we always look for Accrington away because it's not too far from Blackpool. So you go away for the weekend in Blackpool. So often there'd be trouble in Blackpool that night because you haven't had the release during the day.
0: Well, so you've just gone on a night and they would be fighting. But it's yeah, right.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're all there for that. You're drawn to that kind of mm. thing for it. And you know, one thing. This is one thing actually that a point I'll pick up on is I don't like it now because I've got kids and I like to take my kids to football, right? And I would hate to think that they'd ever be around any kind of violence, right? But I I will maintain that it's very difficult to be an innocent bystander and get caught up in football violence. An innocent bystander is somebody who wants to have no affiliation with what's going on, right? right? I went with my wife when she was eight months pregnant to France, the Euros. Remember when it was all going off with Russia? Yeah, yeah. And it had all gone off with Russia at that time. And Marseille. And And we were going to Lons for the Wales game, yeah? Yeah. We didn't go to the Wales game, but we were going for the fan zone. And everyone was saying, you can't go. You can't, not with your wife, eight months pregnant. You can't, you can't do it. And I said, it's fine, right? We, we don't want to be involved in the show. And everyone was saying, you can't invite, like, innocent people are getting hurt. And I think what happens is, when there's tension, and it's on the brink, and it looks like it's going off, it's very, actually, difficult to not get caught up and hyped up in that. And if you want to stand and feel the energy of it going off and film it, mm. right? Then you're not an innocent bystander. You're somebody who's trying to feed off of the energy of it. Absolutely, right? yeah. And we never had one bit. We never got caught up in one bit of trouble when we went to France because every time you felt tension brew in, yeah, you went. Now that's wrong in itself. Me and my wife shouldn't have to go somewhere else because you don't want to have a fight. No, but, but what I'm saying is, yeah. is that people love it. People do love it, right? Uh, they love the feeling and they love the uh, excitement of it all. And so they stick around, and get caught up in it. And then when they get too caught up in it, they become an innocent
0: bystander. And I think that's a bit of a blur. Does that make sense? But absolutely, completely. And yeah. you know, when you're at school, when there's a fight and there's a, the, the whole school rushes to see it. Yeah. But we're obsessed by violence. Yeah. Boxing, MMA, massive. Yeah, exactly. You, you yeah. know, UFC is a huge, uh, huge in- industries and businesses in themselves. And I, I, I'm a big boxing fan. I watch box, more boxing than I do football, right? Yeah, so do I, Yeah, do you? No, I'm a huge boxing fan. Are right? you? Yeah. Right, well, I've got another podcast. <laughs> I'm blowing a belt. But anyway, the uh, I, I will sit there and watch. Uh, you know, one one man. You know, one of my favourite fights is Gatti versus Ward. Right? Ho- yeah. a horrendous. Yeah, yeah. The v- violent fight, um, and I know there's an ethical issue here. I'm there's two men beating the shit out of each other for. Yeah. for, for for my entertainment. Yeah. But it's also carnal and, and uh, instinctual. Yeah. And I'm drawn to it and I can't deny it. And, yeah. You know, there are ethics there, but I'm willing to just put them to the bed, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I, I, I put myself on a bit of uh, a, a high top and say that I think UFC is a little bit unethical and I watch boxing because it's
0: more ethical. Me too. I, I <laughs> yeah. hate UFC. Yeah, shit.
2: Yeah, yeah, It's, I it's horrible. Like it. yeah. It's horrible. Yeah.
0: And I What's don't... with the hammer? We're literally talking about this on the, on the pod. When you can hammer your fist down on a, on a prone, limp opponent... Yeah. ...then so, surely there's something not right about it. Well, and this is the thing, right?
1: So when I used to get involved in all this fighting and stuff at football... It, ...if I punched someone and they hit the hit the floor... ...I wouldn't touch them on the floor... ...because I would be, like, down on the floor. Yeah, you won that bit. You, it's over now. Yeah. I, and that's why I'm going off on a tangent... ...but that's why I like boxing and not UFC... ...because I think if you hit a man to the floor, you've done him.
2: Yeah.
0: You don't need to jump on him and start hammering
2: no. it in the face.
0: Did it was that was that code? Was that a code that everybody agreed and adhered to? Whereas if someone went down, that's they're done.
1: We'd all say that we agreed to it in the pub, but I mean, how much people did agree to it? Right. Well, but the fighting, the fighting was so fleeting. Right. Yeah. Actual <laughs> proper fights at football mm. was what happened so rarely. You're talking. As much as your football accumulator comes in every week that you do, that's how often you'd have a fight.
0: Right. An actual fight.
1: Yeah. But you love the you love
0: to shout at each other. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um that's the yeah, it's the best thing about Arsenal and, and West Ham turning up. because yeah. you get to bounce and, and give it some and, and but we know that police ultimately are ultimately gonna keep me safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm alright with it. Yeah, yeah. Um but there weren't it wasn't you weren't alright all the time, was you? Because um uh you Got tagged pretty badly in a in a fight, didn't you? Yeah,
1: but it's not actually as you'd expect. I was starting to come to a place where because my life was getting really really dark away from football. I was really in a really bad bad place to be fair, and uh, I started to I I was clearly placing too much of my un unha- like my unmet needs on football. Yeah, and that, like i met, we had Swind- Ox- Swindon, and Oxford massive, and Oxford came here once and what happened was that I was so caught up in like this like we die for each other kind of mentality that I had for football it was the Swindon Oxford game and we got caught in a situation where there was loads of lads and a lot less police and everybody went they left and didn't do anything and I was this is disgusting but I was furious about it because I was like there was enough of us to take the police and you all bottled it, so you're all full of you're all full of shit. This is all rubbish. We ain't got each other's backs, right? Uh, and I had to, I, I got so you, you didn't
0: you you, you there wasn't it wasn't Oxford and Swindon. It was no, you, you called the police, and I thought we should be fighting the police. Fuck. But I was bad this is how bad I was. No, no, I fully totally appreciate,
1: and that, it was yeah. horrendous. And, but but I, so I was starting to like fall out of love with it, mainly because most of the lads were there for a bit of a buzz, and I was there to f- escape and to meet needs that were just way more and how i'd gone beyond that you know you're probably um, unaware that that's what he was uh, completely unaware like yeah. completely i could this is i'm talking with hindsight now i guess in a way it was like um you know when you go down the pub with a big group of lads and someone's clearly gone too far and the drinking's becoming a problem mm-hmm. it was almost like that had happened with me in football like um but as the addict, you know, I was looking at them like they were all doing it wrong when really it was me that had gone way beyond, yeah. yeah, and what happened was we went um, to, we was in Blackpool, so what what game was it for? It's somewhere near Blackpool, I don't think it was Blackpool, but we were in Blackpool for the weekend, and it was sixty seventy Swindon lads, and... By this time, I was an annoyance as well, by the way, because I used to drink far too much. I'd be like steaming drunk by 11 in the morning. I'd be just a nightmare. And we were in a pub all having breakfast or lunch. It must've been lunch. And I was throwing food at everyone. And it became a little bit of a banter thing, like a food fight had happened. And then one of the Swindon lads threw um, some food at me and I went up behind me, just had fish and chips bought out, right? Of course, the fish, when it brings out, still spitting hot with yeah. fat. And I went up behind him, grabbed his plate from behind him and put it in his face. Oh, fuck. Of course, it's hurt him. It didn't burn him, but it's hurt him because it's a hot piece of fish <laughs> in his face, right? And he's not taken kindly to it, no. right? And I'm so drunk, I don't really know what's going on. And I said, if you're upset about it, let's go outside and have a fight, right? And he said, yeah, all right, let's go outside. I was still too drunk to realise what was going on and realised. So when we went out the front, I said, go on then you lay your best shot on me, and I hung my face out, and he punched me. It didn't knock me down, it wasn't the hardest punch you've ever seen, it wasn't this big knockout punch, but straight away I was like, I was saying, stop, 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 stop. You knew. I think you broke my jaw. And of course everyone was going, yeah I broke your jaw, you wouldn't be able to speak, right? And I was like thinking, yeah, no, that's right. And I said, no, I was all like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but I can't, my jaw's hurting.
0: And then, so I left it. So you are apologising for not being able to fight?
1: Yeah, and saying, let's just leave it. Like, my jaw, I can't fight. Yeah, Yeah. my right. right. And, like, I was a mess. Like, I was a a, a poor excuse of a man, really, by by that stage of it. And, um... uh, We went back into the Pearl, and I bought a pint, and my mouth was really, really bleeding, right? And, obviously, I was, like, a bit, like, embarrassed by what just happened, Mm -hmm. because I'd called a fight, and basically been beaten, and he was a younger lad than me as well. And... I went into the toilet and I was like, there was no mirrors in the toilet. And I remember I was starting to feel like bad, not good. And Pookie, one of the lads walked in and I said, can you have a look? Because I think my tooth's coming out. And I pushed what felt like my wobbly tooth forward with my, with my tongue. Yeah. And what had happened was my jaw had snapped in two places on the same side of my jaw. So what I thought was a wobbly tooth was a, a, my, a loose part of my jaw. But as well as that, it had dislocated on the opposite side as well right. when he punched me. So he was obviously like, mate, you need to go to hospital now, right? So I got a taxi to hospital and it was the middle of the day and I was thinking they're going to keep me there. So I got the taxi to stop and buy vodka on the way there because I thought I'm going to be here a while, right? That's the state of mind I was in. And I was, I, when we used to go on away days, I would often take a lot of... It's not that I was selling cocaine, but I would take enough to be able to distribute to all the lads that were there so that I could pay for my weekend with that, right? That's how I did it. But I had a lot of it because it was Saturday morning. And I went in, they did the x-ray straight away and they took me through really quickly. And they were like, look, we we need to do emergency surgery on your face like now, Um, but we can't do it at Blackpool. We need to go to Preston. So they gave me loads of morphine and put me in a room to wait for an ambulance. While I was in the room, after they gave me the morphine, I, I had this thought if I take all this cocaine in my pocket, it'll kill me. And I went in the toilet and I took it all. I couldn't get it all up my nose. I was putting... How much are you saying? Grams-wise. Well, it would have been a lot. It would have been like in the region of like 10, 15 grams of coke, right? Right. Because I would have been taking it for the whole weekend. So lots, yeah. So a, a lot of coke, yeah. And I was pouring bags of it. I was emptying each bag into my hand and putting it in my mouth and then washing it down with water. And then I went and sat back on the bed and I was like, I reckon with the amount of morphine that they gave me, because they injected me with morphine, Uh um, I thought that'd kill me. And then I got in the ambulance and I had a seizure. In the ambulance, I think I had a seizure. I mean, I I remember looking at the guy in the ambulance and I was like really violently shaking and he was radioing through saying, I think he's going into shock. And then I woke up the next morning in a hospital bed and they performed the surgery on me. So they they like what they did, they cut inside your lip and pulled all my skin away and put metal plates all on my jaw here. Mm-hmm. Uh and then they came in and they said, Look, we want to keep you in for a few days. We we're a little bit concerned about a few things and I was like, I'm not staying here. No way. Like when they get out and I didn't even listen to what they were saying. I was just thinking, when they get out, I'm going. So when they got out of the room, I rang the lads that I came up with on a minibus
0: I suppose it completely fucked. Well,
1: you'd be surprised. It didn't look, I mean, it just looked like I had a little bit of an ulcer, right? Because it was just swelling, wow. right? And it was because they cut like a very easy to cut, like a neat line in here. And then they I think they glue it back together, right? Yeah. Um, so as soon as they got out, I rang the lads. And I remember they had, the phone answered, and it was on loudspeaker. And it was just like, and I was like, lads, can you come and pick me up now? I'm at the hospital in Preston. And they were like, we are at Birdlip, mate. Birdlip's a hill near Swindon. And I was like, no, you're not. Come and pick me up. I've got no money. I've got nothing, right? Come and pick me up. They'd just gone and left me. They left me there. These blokes who I thought I'd die for, right? They'd gone. They'd left me. And they were all laughing at me. And of course they were all drunk. That's like the way it was. And I just remember then, I was like, that was the last time I properly went to a football, football do Because I had to leave there, I had to um, get somebody to put money into my account so that I could get a train from, from Preston back to Swindon to get home. Mm-hmm. And I remember being on this train, I bought eight cans of Strongbow and I found a straw because I couldn't open my mouth to drink. And I had to drink this Strongbow for a straw going home. And I, that was about six months before I stopped drinking. Uh, and it was the last time I ever. It was one of the best things that happened to me, really, because it made me realise that um, these friendships that I thought were friendships were not real, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was beginning, I guess, in
0: some ways, of change for my life. Yeah. So you just, I'm conscious of us having to round up and, and get to the... Yeah, how long have we been going? We've been going about an hour and 15. Right, 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 right. right. So so you're, yeah, So, but it is fascinating to me. Uh, and I've I've kind of heard this, but these tiny little caveats even fill in more for me. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Um, uh, so you, you're you're this time have six children? No, sorry, no, you've still got four, four children at that time. Yeah, yeah, but you're you're pretty pretty low. Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, you're so you, you got sober because um, you stopped drinking, didn't you? Yeah, um, you did the twelve steps. Yeah, uh, went to AA. Yeah. And somehow, which is a, a miracle in itself, you think how many people that can't escape the clutches, especially having the the, the upbringing that you had, yeah, um, and those kind of learned behaviours that you developed, um, that you managed to get sober, yeah. But when you're sober, things aren't how you'd expect them to be. it didn't fix it. No, it
1: didn't. it didn't. In fact, it didn't fix anything. It just took away the only solution I'd ever had. Yeah, and then basically, what happened? To put it very, like, simply, I went back to being the nine-year-old boy that had just lost his dad, and all of the emotions and feelings and everything that I'd ever suppressed and and pushed down with drink and drugs and everything else I used just came back on me. And I started suffering, like... I now know that I've always suffered with anxiety, right? But I used to just call it thirst, or I used to call it, I need a spliff, right? Whereas now... I didn't have any of that so I was having panic attacks and stuff like that and uh, I reached the stage where I proper wanted to take my own life then and I was going to do it based on the fact that it felt very selfless. It felt like the right thing to do for my kids. Uh, I felt like I could draw a line in the sand for them and I made a decision to do it. Thankfully, I went to see them for one last weekend because I knew I was going to die. Everything just became irrelevant and I was present with my kids for the first time ever Um, and I realised that what was killing me was coming from within and then that's when everything changed
0: after that weekend that's when I started to look at myself that's when I you know the the just you you just got over something that's really important that you had a specific moment with your son yeah
1: yeah yeah well he I remember cuddling my daughter and and feeling what you're supposed to feel when you cuddle your daughter and I'd never never done that I'd always been it always been clouded and I remember my son going down the slide, and when he got to the bottom of the slide, he looked up at me to check that I'd watched him go down. Of cool, it makes me tear up. And, mm-hmm. I, and like, that was when I realised he needs me. He doesn't, despite everything, he doesn't not want me there. He wants me, he wants me here for who I am. Did you feel like you'd been a good dad up to that point? No. No, I knew I wasn't a good dad. I, knew I wanted to be a good dad more than anything, but I was incapable of doing it. That's the truth. Mm and what you know the biggest thing I've ever done in my life of everything that I've been through the biggest thing I've ever done is is come out and say to everyone I'm not what I've said I am like I struggle yeah I'm a, I'm a man I love all that stuff that you know I'm you know i getting back to a place where I, I like the lad part of me you know this is what I like about the Dog Days podcast and the way that they talk about things they don't like slate or put down anything it's all about like understanding that most of life happens somewhere in between yeah, yeah. like lat, being a lad when i'm around all the lads isn't a bad thing right it's it's a it can be a fun thing when done properly right but but that also i struggle with a lot of different aspects of my life and with the rate that men are killing themselves at at the moment it's something that needs to be talked more about right. yeah you can be tough and hard and all that and you can be all of them things and also struggle with anxiety, right? And I now know that, like, I struggle with, I get anxious, yeah? And, like, things, some things make me anxious. I react to that anxiety quite often by getting angry and stuff like that. Like, if I'm walking around the supermarket, if I'm pumping my chest out and kicking off about this knobhead over here and this trolley, it's because I'm feeling a little bit of tension and a little bit of angst and I'm reacting to that in the way that, the only way that I know how. Yeah. And, you know, like I say, after that experience with my children, that ability to come out and say, this is who I really am. I lost a lot of people in my life. I changed the circles that I moved in. I changed the person that I am. Um, but ultimately, it was the, the best thing that I did because now the people that I do have in my life know who I really am. Mm. And that's really, mm. really important. Uh, you know, people... When you think about a life coach, to bring it back to what you were saying at the beginning, the way that you viewed it, that's how I always would have viewed it, right? Of course, yeah, yeah. When I work with people, it's not like I won't even tell them anything that I think they should do, or even give them little nuggets of wisdom. Yeah, it's about being there to help them explore what's really going on and yes. who they really are. So,
0: what you 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 uh, you was doing a job that you didn't like, yeah? And what I found, I don't know if it was the first podcast, second podcast. But you were saying by the end of this year, I am leaving my job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I, you'd made a decision with your girlfriend and or wife, sorry, at the time. And what I loved about that is that she said, Yeah, yeah you are. Yeah. You are leaving. And yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, I am. And you developed this kind of focused on the goal as if it's a reality. Yeah. And there's a lot of hocus pocus around like positive affirmation and uh, yeah, yeah. the rules of attraction and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But that seemed to me when I was listening to you to say that you wanted to get out of this job that you was doing and start a career, this new career in, in life coaching. Is it, I, 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 was you even aware that that was what you no, were No, I didn't thinking? even know life, what life
1: coaching was then at yeah. the time when I said I was going to leave. I just we, knew I wanted to help people and I wanted to help people change. And this was another misconception I had, right? I thought that successful people were just kind of lucky, right? I've always, that's what I thought. I had this black and white thinking where it was like some people are happy, some people are sad, some people are successful, some people are not. And it's not the reality. Like, the people that are successful are so because they've worked to get there, yeah? And when you start to believe in yourself and believe in what you can achieve, then things do start to happen and things start to become possible, yeah? Mm. And especially in the world that we live in today, especially with the internet, yeah? Uh, If you find a need that needs to be met, Right, and you can meet somebody's need, and there's value in what you do. Then you can make money doing it, right? Yeah. And you can make a living out of doing it. Uh, and I never knew all that. I didn't know that, right? I thought I'd always have to work for somebody else. What have I got to offer the world, right? Um, and then I I met the guy who became my coach. It was like for a chance meeting, really. And then he showed me what it was about, and and. Coaching is about creating a space for somebody to be able to find themselves. Yeah,
0: yeah, and do you know how confusing life? It, I mean, you know how confusing life is, but it's confusing for so many people. Yeah, and h- having someone around you who can ha- help help you break down, and please, I want to correct me if I am explaining this wrong, but break down an issue or a problem that you are having, or there is a goal that you want to achieve. That is it that you would help them get to that, or yeah. So life coaching isn't about like me like
1: setting even strategies for you that not this is not the way that i coach i coach more from a compassionate level where i will i will listen and ask the right questions yeah yeah so if i was coaching you i wouldn't tell you to do anything i would listen and people tell you clues in the most of things that they say yeah, yeah? It, like a, a good example if somebody says to you i'm not looking for sympathy when i say this but this happened in my childhood and it was really difficult mm. straight away as a coach i'd be saying what I'd be looking at that part of you saying you're not looking for sympathy. I'd say, why, what's happened to you in your life that's made you think that your emotional needs are, is seeking sympathy, right? And then you can explore and unpack that, yeah? And then you start to recognise the stuff that I recognised in myself. What narrative is this person telling themselves that's making them believe that they can't achieve
0: X, Y or Z? Yeah, it's why, which is why what, what the first part of your story is so important. Yeah. Uh, which is what resonated with me. Because I, I, when I started listening to your your pod on the dog days, it wasn't, I, I looked at it from um, Suicide to Salvation or something along the yeah. like, I can't remember what the title they used use was. And then heard your story. And then at the end, of, you're, you're a life coach. It's like, fuck, well, that makes complete sense. Yeah. You can't, I, I'd imagine it'd be very difficult to learn how to, at university how to become a life coach without yeah. going through the experiences yeah. at the same time
1: and I yeah and I think that's what uh, the way that I've been able to like unpack and untangle my life to be able to make sense of it and to be able to kind of validate the ways that I felt mm. like is a is a is a skill that in a way you can like you said you can't you can't almost, you can't teach I'll, I'll, I'll
0: never I've never listened to anyone talk about themselves and able to look at it in, 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 in such an analytical way that you do and, and, and break, break down. Well, I, I understand why I feel like this because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Most people look back at their life and might think about difficult things that have happened in the past and, and make, well, oh, how that makes sense, why I feel this way. But you've, you've systematically broke it down. Yeah. And it's almost like the, the, the service that you're offering is what you've done for yourself now by looking back.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's how I coach people. Yeah. Basically I will do what I've done in breaking down my life. I'll help other people to do that. Mm. And what you start to realize then is that change becomes really, really easy because you start to realize that most of the limitations in your life come from yourself. They come just from a narrative that you said, ultimately in the beginning, it was probably to protect yourself from something.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so it becomes ingrained in you. And then you just need somebody to help you figure that out, and then you can move forward in your life so what kind of person you know
0: how comes to you to, to help
1: so most of the coaching that I get now comes through like the corporate organization so I work with a lot of like global organizations I go in and deliver I say workshops but they're more group coaching so I get eight to ten people in there we'll start discussing resilience normally um, and then I start to because a lot of people think resilience is just showing up no matter what, yeah, and if you look at the pattern of my life, originally I thought I was being resilient, just showing up no matter what, but that's not resilience, that's coping, that's surviving, yeah, and ultimately you pay the price in the end. Resilience is about processing things properly and understanding what they mean and being able to take things that happen to you so that they can become your strength, and so normally I go into organisations, I group coach, and then from that, people then come to me and say they want to do some one-on-one stuff and unpack things even further. So a lot of it is, um, professionals working in like high pressured environments that want to understand themselves better to be able to become resilient in their work. But then I also have, um, like some people that I, I work with, a guy, I want to be steady not to tell his story too much, but he struggled, come from a really dark place and he's, just got his dream job just he started this week which is like and he's done that in the space of the last nine months incredible it's, thing to you see meet,
0: meet him and work for him that, that I've worked
1: with him the whole time yeah, yeah. yeah so that's incredible it's incredible to be part of that yeah and then as well I work with um, young young lads and girls actually but young people that are problematic at school, so they're on the on the point of being excluded, and the schools trying not to exclude them. Mm. Uh, so I'll go in and do workshops with them and try and look at getting them to understand what they're reacting to. Are they receptive to you? more more than adults? Yeah,
0: yeah, because they're
1: crying out for it, right? Yeah. When a child acts out, they're acting out how they feel because they don't know how to communicate it. Yeah, and. You start to realise the impact as parents that, you, that we have on our children and how huge it is and how we can say things that, are, that we've used to cope and we then pass that on to our children. You know, I speak to a lot of young lads who are struggling and I say, do you ever speak to your parents about this feeling that we just spoke about of anxiety? And they say, I've told my dad and he says, you don't know what stress is. Wait till you go out and work in the real, in the real world. Now that's something that we could all throw out there easily because it's something we say to protect ourselves. My stress ain't that bad. There's people who've got it worse.
0: That's yeah, what I say. Do, I do that all the time. Yeah, yeah. Time. But
1: this young boy has been has, has been taught that his emotions and his stresses have no value. Yeah. So of course he's reacting in a silly way when he's at school because he doesn't know how to deal with them. Mm. So you don't need uh, an alcoholic parent uh, to 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 have a, a deep impact. Mm. You look at the world today and how busy we are all the time, it's causing huge problems. Devices cause huge problems, yeah? You look at the way that we parent our kids and the way that we use our mobile phones. I really, have I got time to give you a really quick example of how I think it can affect? Yeah. We've got time, yeah? Right? Yeah, yeah, so, I, I, I've got all day. I'm worried yeah, about yeah, like yeah, you, yeah, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're all right. Uh, if I think, I, I'll give you an example of what happened. This happened with my daughter. She's three now. This was probably a few months ago. So she was under three years old. I said to her, come on, let's sit down and I'll watch Peppa Pig with you, right? So we sit down, we watch... I put Peppa Pig on. Now, Peppa Pig's shit, right? Okay. I, like, I don't. I don't want to watch it, <laughs> right? I find it difficult to be present, right? Just to sit there next to my daughter and watch Peppa Pig. Yeah. So I get my phone out. I get my phone out and I get lost in whatever it might be Maybe, let's say I am start looking at my work emails and then I'm in it now my daughter's two and a half years old at the time she wants me to watch Peppa Pig with yeah. her and be present with she's her she's in right so she can see I'm on my phone she doesn't have the language to say dad can you watch Peppa Pig with me please I don't want you to be on your phone so what does she do she does the only thing she knows how which is to start messing about jumping up and down jumping on me coming in front of my face what do I do because I'm now engrossed in my phone it's like oh Maya. Get off, right? If you don't want to watch Pepper Pig, I'll turn the bloody thing off, right? Mm. Sit down and watch it. And in that very instant, which we can all do really easily if we're not mindful, what have I told my daughter? Well, firstly, I've told her she's not as important as my mobile phone. So she's not as significant as a small device in my hand. I've told her that, right? I've I told her that straight away. And the second thing I've told her is don't you dare bring your feelings to the table with me because if you do, I'll take away what you're seeking, which is attachment to me and watching Peppa Pig. Yeah. And I did that once and had a realisation that I need to get off my phone, right? There's loads of people that are doing that every day. And by the way, I've had that realisation and I've still sat there and done it. Probably in the last week. Yeah. yeah. So it's very easy to think that you need a really dysfunctional family to have a, a negative impact on our children. But if we're not careful, we are leaving them with unmet needs and teaching them bad stuff all the time. I used to use time out with my boy. It's one of my biggest ever regrets using timeout with my son, right? Because timeout, when if my son has a like a, a tantrum, yeah, he's having a tantrum because he's having an overload of feeling and emotion that he can't deal with. I'm not very good at dealing with my emotions, am I? So I find it very difficult to go and meet him and help him soothe his emotions. It triggers me, and I don't want to deal with it. So what do I do? Shut up! Stop playing acting out! Right? Calm down! Stop being silly! Right? Right? Go and sit on the noise step! Right? what do I do when I sit him on the naughty step the naughty step works right because it tells him and I've threatened him with the very thing that he's craving which is attachment to me and I've taken that away from him I've said you will only get my love if you do what I need you to do and when you're struggling with emotions and overwhelm I ain't got enough space for that so next time you'll go on the naughty step so next time what does he do he pushes all that down Yeah. then when he gets older he gets in fights at school because he don't know how to deal with his emotions and he's pushing them all down right so the way that we parent, the way that we interact any problem that we have as adults in in the present is a coping mechanism that we've learned my depression when I was 19 20 years old right started off as me depressing my emotions my emotions were too difficult they were too painful for me to experience so I pushed them down they started to come out of me as an adult in forms of depression right sleeping all the time having difficulty sleeping really really anxious my body's shaking all the time full of emotion that i've never dealt with so we have to understand the impact of our daily lives and what we have on young people right and i think what we see in the society that we've got today and football is a is normally a mirror of society So, violence and all that's coming back it's rearing its head again in Mm. football so is racism in society, knife crime's rearing its head. And that's all I think because of unmet needs in in young people. And it
0: comes out Mm. in things like knife crime and football violence. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, I mean, I can sit here and talk to you all day, but I'm conscious that your wife's coming home. So um, if someone out there uh, is looking to engage your service, or I think what's more likely is they'll be unsure about whether or not they should, Mm. or unsure about how you could help. How would they contact you just for like a, a, a conversation? So I heard heard the pod. I've got this. Maybe you can help me with. What would be the best way for me to make contact? with you?
1: Well, there's. I'm very sort of reachable online now. So I'm on. I'm very active on like YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. Maybe not so much Facebook. But my website's joshconnolly.co.uk, uh, and all my links to my social media is on there. And I'm I'm Josh under FFW um, on. Instagram and Twitter, hmm. and like I said I'm I'm really engaging on there. I, I like speaking to people, so when people reach out, you know, I, I'm more than happy to
0: to you know engage in
1: conversation well, like
0: with your people. tweet the other day about the Jack and the Beanstalk and your daughter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's good she. You, she thinks that you made that story up. Yeah, she definitely. Yeah, she. I mean, it's a really rubbish impressed? version of it is yeah. She impressed though with the story.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course she is. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm like our daddy will make up a story, and I sit there and I just
0: tell her stories like you already know yeah yeah <laughs> modern days you'll see that tweet um <laughs> uh yeah i mean that's 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 fantastic man and thank, thanks for taking the time to speak to us and hopefully less uh you know people enjoy the story they will enjoy it because it's an interesting story uh but hopefully you know people can help turn around their lives by yeah. engaging in your work yeah um just one one final question uh what what do, are you still are you close with your mum? And, and
1: yeah, I'm really close with my mum. Yeah, yeah. So uh see my mum all the time um, and close with my stepdad and close with my family. So, you know, none of what I talk about with my childhood has anything to do with blame. It's just about understanding. My mum was caught up in it all herself, you yeah. know. She was in something that she never understood. Um, so she struggled in her own way from it, right? So, um you can look back at your childhood without any blame without any resentment with with compassion and just understand the impact it had on you and i think that's really really important because for a long time i thought that speaking about the negative impact of some of the things that happened to me when i was a child was betrayal to my mum. Mm. and it's not betrayal um it's just about finding myself and having understanding thank you so much Josh. thank you <laughs>